Yes, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be able to preach the Word of God to you this morning. I know that that is no small thing. Um, the Word of God is, is no fool's errand. The preaching of the Word of God is no fool's errand. And so I take it very seriously, and I'm very grateful to the pastors for extending the invitation to me. And may the Lord bless His Word. I'm just going to read in Philippians chapter 2, again, verses 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. The title of the sermon is, Work Out Your Own Salvation. Work Out Your Own Salvation. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Amen. The life of the believer is one marked by struggle. The way to heaven is paved with difficulty. If anyone tells you anything different, they tell you a lie. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Matthew chapter 7. Plain and simple, the way to heaven is hard. Ask yourself then, am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought To win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. Assuredly, we must fight if we are to win the prize. The world, the flesh, and the devil never sleep. They find no respite, never ceasing, never resting. They are always active, always seeking our demise. It is a war, a spiritual battle. Therefore, we must be active. We must not sleep nor slumber. We must arise and put on Christ and press in to the kingdom of God by faith. If we suffer with Christ, then we shall reign with him. Come what may, we must be determined to persevere. Come hell or high water, resolute, we must contend to continue in obedient faith till the end, to abide, to run the race with endurance that is set before us, to always be looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Faith must be our earnest endeavor day by day, hour by hour, and minute by minute. God helping us. Amen? Is that not what the Word of God calls us to? And as we do, the way of obedience to God often brings upon us great pressure. Pressure to compromise. Pressure to go our own way. 
to follow the dictates of our own heart, to follow the course of this world, and to be shaped into its mold and made into its likeness. The way of obedient, in, in the way of obedient faith, there will be resistance. We will meet with difficulty, but we ought to take heart. We ought to take heart that our God is a God who always works. He is working. He gives grace to strengthen and grace to refresh his pilgrim people in the narrow way. There's a vivid picture of this illustrated in Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, the Hill of Difficulty. Bunyan's Pilgrim, Christian, in his journey to the celestial city, comes to a steep incline. And it says in the text, the path to heaven from the narrow gate goes straight up the hill called difficulty. At the base of the hill, there is a spring. And there are also two alternate paths. One turning to the left called danger and another turning to the right called destruction. And as our pilgrim, as Christian, arrives at the foot of the hill, there are also two other men. Two men who had not come through the narrow gate, but climbed over the wall instead. Formalists and hypocrisy were their names. And these men think to themselves, they think to themselves, these two alternate, wrath, these two alternate paths, they'll eventually join on the way to Zion. And so then they depart. They take the path of least resistance. One of them took the path to the left called danger, and it was then that he was led into a great forest and lost forever. And the other took the path on the right called destruction, where he found himself in a, in a wide field full of dark mountains, and there he stumbled and fell, never to rise again. But Christian did not turn aside. Being instructed to keep the narrow path beforehand, he drinks from the spring placed at the bottom of the hill by his king for refreshment. And then he commenced to climb up the hill saying, This hill, though high, I covet to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way of life lies here. Come, pluck up heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better though difficult, the right way to go, than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. Brethren, if we ourselves are on the way to heaven, we are called to climb the hill of difficulty just like pilgrim and just like every other pilgrim that has ever reached the city of celestial glory. It goes right up that path. One could even say, that the life of the Christian is characterized by difficulty. Difficulty mingled with refreshment. Difficulty mingled with strength. But difficulty no less. As you hear those things, ask yourself the question. What does your Christian life consist of? Can you say amen? Yes, I have found that to be so. I have found that to be so. The path that we tread as Christian is laden with temptations, with trials, and with tribulations. In this illustration, Bunyan, John Bunyan, uses this hill to describe the way of obedience to God. The way of obedience to God. The straight and narrow way. 
The hill represents the believer's life of submission to the revealed will of God. It's symbolic to walking in the law of the Lord. And any other way than this, any way besides the master's way, any other path for your feet besides the path of obedient faith is the way of danger and destruction. And we're not to turn to the left or to the right. We are not to turn to the left nor to the right, but to drink from the wells of salvation and persevere in obedient faith to the end. It's to him who endures to the end that will be saved. That is what the Lord Jesus Christ has told us. And this morning, I wanna, I'd like to consider this text, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, under three points. One, persevere with the people of God. Persevere with the people of God. Point two, persevere in obedience to God. Persevere in obedience to God. And point three, persevere in the power of God. Persevere in the power of God. First, persevere with the people of God. Division is destructive and detrimental to the well-being of the church. Persevere with the people of God. Division is destructive and detrimental to the well-being of the church. Our text begins, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul, now, after setting forth Christ as the example and pattern of humble, sacrificial love, he picks back up his exhortation in verse 12 with therefore. Right? Therefore is a connective, and it ties our verses 12 and 13 to that which came before it. It signifies a transition from the subject of Christ's conduct to what ought to be the logical conclusion concerning the conduct of Christ's own special people. That is the, that's the significance of this word, therefore. But there is a greater context that we must consider if we're going to rightly understand the teaching of our text and the, and the principles therein. And these two verses, verses 12 and 13, they're usually considered or preached as just an isolated exhortation exhortation concerning sanctification, disjointed from the greater context. Or these two, these two verses are usually set forth as a basis for a discourse on the doctrine of man's responsibility, work out, or God's sovereignty, God works. They're often used as an opportunity to speak on the subject of the fear of God, it's true. Indeed, all of these precious gems are found in this text. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, the doctrine of sanctification, <clears throat> the fear of God. But I would venture to say that something very important is missing if we only speak about these. If we all together disregard the historical context, if we ignore what was happening in the church in Philippi at the time Paul wrote this letter, 
then we will most definitely, to some degree, miss out on the mind of God when we hear what is uttered in these hallowed verses. There is no doubt that Paul is urging them to obedience. Obey much more in my absence, he says. There's no doubt that Paul is laying up, laying upon them their solemn responsibility and exhorting them to persevere to the end. Work out your salvation. Right? There's no doubt that he directs their minds to and encourages them in their work by reminding them of their God who works sovereignly by his grace in the hearts of his people. It is God who works in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. But it is the context, it is the connection between these two verses and the rest of the letter that helps us to understand the heart of what is being said. What am I getting at? I'm referring to the fact that in this church, there were specific problems which the saints were being called to persevere through by the apostle. There are certain problems, and the, there were issues in the church at Philippi. The apostles' call to continued obedience, obey, obey. His call to continued obedience and his exhortation to work are directly tied to the issue of division and schism amongst the people of God in Philippi. The difficulties of divisions and of pride and self-serving and contention are that which give rise to the exhortations in the text. Obey and work. This is also the reason for the several entreaties which he's already made to them in the first chapter of the book. Philippians chapter 1. This, this will kind of give you a, a taste of that historical context. Philippians 1 verse 27. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, he says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This division in the church, that, that is why... He is saying those things. This division in the church is because there's division in Philippi. And it was at the forefront of Paul's mind when he wrote these people. They were people whom he knew, who he had met face to face, that he had poured his life into, whom he had served together with for the sake of the gospel. People that were beloved and who had become to him very precious and near and dear to his heart. Think about what he affectionately wrote in Philippians 4, verses 1 to 3. The problem in the church is made even more clear. He says in Philippians 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. 
I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. I urge you, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now here we see these two women, these two ladies, believers, who had labored with Paul, Yodia and Syntyche. They were not at peace with one another. They were not of one mind and one soul. They were no longer striving together for the sake of the gospel. They were divided. They were at odds with one another. Something, something had come between them. And now they need help. And so Paul entreats his, his yoke fellow in Philippi. It's likely the pastor there to come to their aid and to help them pursue peace and be reconciled one with another. Right? That is the context in which he says, but now, in our verse, verse 12, but now obey much more in my absence. In other words, what we have in verse 12 is a call for the saints to obey the commands to be like-minded, to be peacemakers, to be humble and selfless towards one another. Furthermore, verse 12 as a whole is an, ex ex it's an exhortation to the people of God to follow the example of Christ that he's already laid out in the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. These, this like-mindedness, this, this obedient faith unto union, are the orders from the general to all who are enlisted in his service to march in a manner worthy of the gospel, to walk in selfless, humble, servant love towards the brethren as an act of obedience, joyful, glad, worship-filled obedience to God, their Father. Because, because the Lord Jesus they're called to do that. They're called to march in that way because the Lord Jesus, though being God of every very God, made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a servant and he humbled himself for the sake of the elect. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And in this, the Savior has left for us a pattern that we should follow in it. Brethren, division is destructive and detrimental to the well-being of the church. And like the Philippians, we are being called as we read the text, as we meditate and study, as we hear the preaching of the word, we are being called to persevere with the people of God, to continue in union with each other to the end. We are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There will be divisions in every church. Divisions must happen. They are of divine necessity. In order that those who are approved of God may be made plain. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 teaches us that. When the Apostle Paul instructs the Corinthian church concerning the Lord's Supper. He says those very words, divisions, I hear that there are divisions amongst you, and I believe it, for there must be, so that those who are approved may be made plain. It's going to happen. 
We must, we must contend. We, each of us, every single individual must contend with the world, the flesh, and the devil in this matter. If they could, they would utterly destroy our unity and harmony one with another. They are constantly working to tear us apart, and we must not be ignorant of Satan's devices. As we live our lives together with the church, just think about it. We can be so easily offended. We are prone to cling to our preferences, and we can subtly give ourselves to partiality or cliquishness, drawing lines, and picking sides, first in our own hearts, in our own minds, and then before we know it, we're divided. When this is so, when this is happening, all it takes is for the temperature in the church to rise, for the people to come under undue pressure, and all of a sudden things erupt. Disorder, chaos, conflict, and contention are the result. When we get offended... And we will. We must keep short accounts with one another. We're to go to our brother and sister and tell them their fault. If they've sinned against us, and it is if they've sinned against us, not if they've not kept our preference or um, not looked at, looked at us in the right way, but if they've sinned against us, we're to go and tell them. Tell them their fault. We come graciously. But we tell them their heart. We come graciously, humbly, and patiently. But you must tell them. Communication is one of the most important aspects to any relationship. You, if you are offended, if you are offended right now, or if you get offended in the future, you should talk about it. You talk about it not as a gossip or a backbiter, Speaking of it to others, whether it be to your spouse or to a fellow church membership, you go to the person with whom the offense is concerned and you talk it out with them in love and grace. And if we sin against one another, and we will, we're called by the Lord to confess our sins to one another. It's not, it's not comfortable. It becomes more comfortable the more that you do it. If you establish a pattern of obeying God in this way. But it can be very difficult if you're not used to pursuing peace like this. This is how Christ calls us to pursue peace in the church. If we sin against each other, and we will, we're called of the Lord to confess our sins to one another, humbly acknowledging our faults in repentance and seeking the forgiveness of those who have offended. I want to say something really quick. This really assumes that you spend time together that you're involved in each other's lives. If, if you just come to church and spend that hour in the service or two hours in the service, and then you go back to your own life and live isolated from the people of God, that, that, that falls short of what God calls us to, what Christ, the head of the church, calls us to. But it's when you're really living out the Christian life in the midst of the people of God that these things become very evident. Where there are offenses and you do sin against one another. When you're involved in each other's lives and you're rubbing elbows and you're stepping on toes, that's when the rubber really meets the road. So if all of this is strange to you, what do you mean we're sinning against each other? Oh, it might be that you're not committed to God and the people of God in the way that he's called you to. If you have no idea what I'm talking about. If we sin against each other, we, and we will, we're called to go. When a person has sinned against us or offended us, 
let us not take let us let us take heed not to hold a grudge against them right we must stand ready to forgive and if they have repented and confess their sins and they do seek our pardon we must freely forgive them as god has forgiven us in christ jesus freely graciously and this is not easy but is this is what we must do this is the obedience like this is the obedience that the church in Philippi are being called to. And this is the obedience that we are being called to. We must fight the good fight of faith and labor for unity and peace. First, in our own minds, in our own hearts. That's where the battle begins. In our thinking, in our feelings, our affections, our will and our desire, that, our imaginations. That's where we must begin the fight. How can a person consider themselves a Christian if they will not follow the Lord in his ways and in his word? If we follow Jesus, who so denied himself to benefit others, how could we not be compelled by such love to pursue the same by, bear, by bearing patiently with one another? How can we say that we love God whom we have not seen, will we, when we will not love our brethren whom we do see. Peace and unity, one with another, are critical aspects of our sanctification. It's directly tied to our sanctification, to our progress in the faith, our perseverance to the end. Our peace and unity is fundamental and foundational. In this matter, we have need of endurance. In this matter, we have need of endurance. Let no man think that he is making any progress heavenward if he will not pursue peace. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 15 tells us such. Therefore, just think about um, the practical import of this with the people of God. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. So Christ has left us an example of selfless love for others. So in that context, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Persevere with the people of God and work out your salvation being united to one another, pursuing peace with one another, loving one another in that way. Point two, persevere in obedience to God. Work out your own salvation. You know, if you just, if you take that text on its surface, disconnected from its context, it seems like something very individualistic. But that is not the way that the Lord would have you understand this text. It's really work out your own, you, I can't work your salvation out, you can't work my salvation out. And God is not going to work for me. I'm called to work out my own salvation, but it's in the context of being together with the church. There are a few verses in the Bible as important or foundational to the doctrine of Christian living and sanctification as these. Work out your own salvation. 
It is clear here that every believer is a responsible agent. They have a work to do. They're not to lay down, to sleep, or to slumber in apathy or passivity. We have not yet arrived. We have not yet entered into our eternal rest in heaven. We are not without war or without enemy in this life. We are in the progress of being made perfect. Before considering what is meant by work out your salvation, let me first say what it doesn't mean. We should not take this verse to mean that we must pay. That we must pay for our salvation. As if Christ had not paid the price in full for his purchased possession. No. We should not understand it to say that we must merit or earn our justification and the forgiveness of sins. For that is freely bestowed on all who believe. It is not to him who works, but upon him who believes. It is by his faith that he is reckoned righteous in the sight of God. Also, we should not deduce from this statement, work out your salvation, that there is anything lacking in the work of Christ for his people. No, there's nothing lacking in the work of Christ for his people. It is finished. It is finished were his dying words when he gave himself to be the propitiation for our sins. God's wrath is satisfied and it was satisfied on the cross once and for all. It is finished. Everything necessary for the salvation and redemption of hell deserving sinners has been accomplished in Christ's person and work. It is finished. And by his once and for all offering of himself, he is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through him. So what then is there for us to work out, you may ask? We should take this to mean work out your own salvation. We should take it to mean that we are to bring about our own salvation, not in the sense of graces already received, graces like regeneration, the imputed righteousness of Christ, justification, adoption, or the cleansing of our sins, the forgiveness of our sins. No. You know, when you speak of salvation, you could speak of salvation is very complex, and you could speak of different aspects of salvation. All of these things, right, justification, adoption, um, the forgiveness of sins, regeneration, all of these things the believers in Philippi had already received, just as we have received them if we are united to Christ. Paul writes to all the, right, all the saints who are in Christ Jesus in Philippi, Philippians 1.1. Here, work out your own salvation. Paul is speaking of a salvation in a specific sense, of a salvation that has yet to be revealed. He, as it were, points his finger forward into a future direction, saying, bring to pass or see to completion your salvation. It's another way of saying, endure to the end. Continue. Run the race. Press on. March forward. Do not turn back. And he's laying upon them their own personal responsibility. He's saying... Do everything. Do all that you are called to do in the service of your master as if 
your final salvation depended upon it, knowing that your feeble working finds its wellspring in the reality that God is at work in you unto perseverance. This was the mind of the apostle. This is one of the, the, the truths that were foundational and governed the apostle's life when considering his own salvation. Listen to Philippians chapter 3, just a, a page, turn a page to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Paul says, Not that I have already attained or am already per perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says to them, Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this even to you. Nevertheless, to the, to the degree that I have already attained, let us walk in the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. And we are called to persevere, to persevere with Paul, to persevere in God's grace, to persevere together, to take an active role in our pursuit of holiness, in our pursuit of heaven. We are to pursue peace with one another as we pursue the final salvation of our souls. Not as our merits, but as our mission. Not to pay our debts, but as our resolved determination. Lest any of us fall short of the grace of God. As we persevere together with one another in obedience, right? The manner, he gives us the manner. The manner in which we are to run is in the fear of God. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Bring to completion your final salvation. Handle your personal responsibility in the way to heaven. Pursue perfection. Climb the hill of difficulty in the fear of the Lord. Not in a slavish fear. No. Not in the dread and terror of condemnation. No. And not merely with awe and reverence. But in the fear of God. In the fear of displeasing him, the fear of grieving his Holy Spirit, the fear of bringing a reproach upon his worthy and holy name. And this fear is what the old preachers called the filial fear of God, the filial fear of God. It's, it's the heart disposition of children, the children of God. It is the fear befitting dear children who love their father. This fear flows from the sort of love that drives them to gladly take great pains and make great sacrifices to think in a way and speak in a way and live in a way that is well-pleasing to God. That is the fear of God. John Murray said of this fear, The fear of God is the soul of godliness. It is that heart disposition that is exceedingly careful so to not offend God. It's this fear and trembling, this anxiety of displeasing God, 
this love for our great and awesome Savior that urges us towards humility, towards holiness, towards unity. It is this fear and trembling that also helps us to see and to feel our own neediness, to suspect our own strength, to see our inability to bring to pass on our own what God has called us to work out, thus driving us to Him by faith for grace. Now, as we continue, so far we've considered the difficulty We've heard the exhortation to handle our business, this side of heaven. Now let us go on to consider the apostles', the apostles encouragement and the ground of our hope in the race that is set before us. So far, it's just been bricks in our backpack, in a sense. But the Lord here lightens the load. This is the only reason we may expect success in our striving. This is the spring at the foot of the, of the mountain. This is the spring at the foot of the hill of difficult. That we are to drink from as we ascend. The place where our soul finds rest in our labors. And consolation as we collide with the forces of evil. Both within and without. It's knowing this. God is at work in us. God is at work in us. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which works in you. If we will pursue peace with all, and that holiness without which no one will see the Lord, if we are to press on to the end and be saved, striving together in union with one another, if we are con to continue on the straight and narrow without compromise and without blasphemy, we must persevere in the power of God. We must persevere in the power of God. Like, that is the reason, the very reason we are to work out our own salvation is because God is at work. God's working results in our working. It's not backwards. It is not, it is not that our working causes God to work. Mm. Our working finds its source in God's working. Mm. God is at work in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. What a glorious thought that is. That God, infinite and beyond measure in knowledge, wisdom, power should work in the hearts of sinners like us the god who created the heavens and the earth he spoke and they were created the one who calls the stars the planets into existence calls them by name he works in the hearts of his people he upholds all things by the word of his power who governs the sea the winds and the waves obey him the seasons change at his command at his word, the snow is sent forth from his treasury, and he fathers the rain. Great is our God, and greatly to be praised, and he works in our hearts. And our Father has been working ever since the beginning. He's at work even now in the church. He who has begun a good work in you will see it through to completion. We ought to be encouraged by this. We ought to be encouraged by this and exceedingly thankful. 
He does not work as we work with all our failings, with our weaknesses, remaining sin and sloth. If God were anything like us, we could never have hope for salvation at last. We are weak, but he is strong. And when we are weak, his grace is sufficient. For in our strength, in our weakness, his strength is perfected in us. Our help. You must hold on to this. You are called to work. But you will never be able to work if you do not apply yourself to the only help. The maker of heaven and earth. He will not let our foot slip. He who keeps us will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He is continually working in his people. There is not a moment in the life of the believer where the Lord is not at work to conform them into the image of his son. There's never a second wasted in the hand of our God. He always has his chisel in hand, shaping and fashioning us into his likeness. Likeness from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. It, you, you may feel, maybe if you're laid up uh, with some sickness, or you're not able to do the things that you were once able to do in your physical strength, you can think to yourself, this time is wasted. I should be doing this and I should be doing that. God is at work. God is working there in the crucible. He's working there in the furnace of affliction. And he makes the trials and the tribulations break with blessings upon our forehead. He uses all things for the good of his people. He is at work in us both to will and to do. To will and to do. That is, he works by his spirit. Godly desire to will. Godly desire in our redeemed hearts. Right? He causes us to hate what he hates and to love what he loves. It's by his power, by his working, we hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's according to his doing that we have a kindred spirit with fellow believers, that we care for them, that we want to see them doing well and strong in the Lord. It is of God that we want them to make it at last to the celestial city, to be received by saints and angels into the everlasting fellowship, to see them there with our Lord in robes of victory. It's because of Him we want to do all that we can do to help them on their way. Isn't that right? It's because of Him. Do you not want that? Some Christians or professing Christians walk around with a mirror all their days. And they only think about themselves. But God works in us. To consider one another. And we want more. I'm talking about our desire now. He works in, works in us to will. He works in us godly desire. And we want more than anything in the world. To honor and to glorify our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Both in our life. And in our death. And we do. We do. We do it imperfectly. And we do it rather poorly at times. But we do. Because he works in us. Both to will and to do. For his good pleasure. It's because of his good pleasure. Not because of anything beautiful in us. Not because of we've earned anything. There was nothing in us. That caused him to turn his eye. 
and show mercy. No, he works because it pleases him to work. If these things describe you, if these things, this, this willing, this desiring to honor God, and this doing, this honoring God, if these things describe you, if they describe your consuming passion, the pattern of your life, the desire to honor and obey the Lord Jesus Christ and to love your neighbor as yourself, then bless the name of the Lord. It's because the Lord is at work. And if he's working in you, he will carry you to the end and into his kingdom of everlasting glory. Only do not fall asleep. Do not lay the weapons of your warfare down. Do not forget your brethren. Let his working encourage you to press on. It's not because of you. It's not because of you that he works in you. It's not because of anything that we have done. He saves and he will save. He works and he will work because it pleases him to do. God works in you for his good pleasure. And as we close, I want to address those who have not obeyed this form of gospel doctrine. To you who are not laboring in the Lord's vineyard. If you are not working out your salvation, why not? Why not? Is it because you have not yet received a salvation to work out? If you find that you do not have the desire to obey God, if it's not a joy to deny yourself and serve Christ, if Christ's sacrifice of love on the cross does not compel you to serve Him and to serve others, if the Christian life is to you no more than a loathsome yoke upon your shoulders, it is most likely because you are not right with God. Not saved. And that God is not at work in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. Because that is what he does in the life of a believer. Everyone, you don't go to a car lot and ask, do the tires come with this? Do the rearview mirrors come with this? No. When, you, when God saves a person, he works in them those desires. And he gives them the abilities to Bring to pass what they have longed for by His grace. It's possible, even probable, that you have not yet been born again and delivered from your own sins. That you've not had the heart of stone taken out and replaced with a heart of flesh. A new believing Heart from the Savior. And until you do receive this free gift of salvation by the empty, beggarly hand of faith in Christ, you will always be self-serving and miserable. You'll never have true, lasting joy. You'll never really love others like Christ. You'll never be able to live the Christian life. And you'll never get yourself into heaven. You'll never get yourself into heaven. You must turn from your sins 
and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. It is finished. What he has done is sufficient. You don't have to add. And you cannot take away. What he has done is sufficient to save to the uttermost all who come to God through him. This day, I plead with you in Christ's stead, my friend. Turn from your wickedness and come to Christ in faith. Only He can wash away your sins. Only He can make you fit for heaven. Only He can save you from yourself. And He promises to do that. He promises to do that if you will come to Him and put your trust in Him and what He has done to save sinners. He entreats you. He entreats all. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Let us simply take him at his word and cast our souls upon him. Amen. And brothers and sisters, let us run our race looking unto him. Pray with me. Gracious and merciful Father, you are so good so kind. We thank you for your word. May it drop down like dew upon the tender grass. Lord, cause these words. Lord, if there is anything in there from me, wash it away. And cause your word to run swiftly and bear fruit in the lives of these people. To bear fruit in my own life. For your glory. Lord, help us, Lord, to run to the Lord Jesus Christ, the sanctuary for the soul, our mighty fortress, our hiding place. Help us to hope in him, to trust in him. Lord, if there's someone here that does not yet know, someone that has not tasted and seen that the Lord is good, call them to yourself mightily by your Holy Spirit, powerfully open their eyes that they may see and behold his glory and beauty and trust in him. Lord, I pray for all of your precious pilgrim people. Encourage them. Cause them, Lord, to come to that spring of your grace and to drink. To drink from the wells of salvation and to run. Strengthen the weak hands, the, the, the hands that hang down and the feeble knees, Lord. Help us, Lord, to encourage one another and to come alongside each other and to be an, an effectual means of their perseverance, perseverance. Help us to exhort one another while it is called today, lest any be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and depart from the living God. Mm. Help us, Lord, to, to own it, to own our responsibility, and to apply ourselves to you for grace in our working. Mm. In Christ's name, amen.